Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome to the On Deck Fireside Chat, Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew's the co-founder of Tiny, and back in 2006, he started MetaLab, which is one of the world's top design agencies in Victoria, Canada, um, where I think he's been based pretty much his whole life. And uh, out of there, grew this company rapidly, um, using the profits of that company to then diversify into a variety of businesses, which today form Tiny, a group of companies which is decidedly not Tiny, over 300 employees and tens of millions in revenue. Andrew, welcome. Hey guys, how's it going? Very cool to have you here. Um, so as you know, the audience today um, is focused on the creator economy, founding small companies and startups and, and, and growing and growing rapid, uh, scaling companies rapidly. And today we're going to focus on sort of that whole cross-section of audiences. And to kick things off, I wanted to know if you were willing to share the story behind your worst job you've ever had. Oh my God. Um, I've actually had a lot of bad jobs. Um, my first one though was probably my worst. Um, I, I remember my dad told me, you know, Hey, you're, you're 15. You need to start figuring out what you're going to do. And I'm not going to give you allowance anymore. And, uh, I just walked into a McDonald's and applied. I, I worked there for maybe two months and, uh, it was probably just like pure misery. Right. So, uh, I was working the grill, burning my hands, covered in grease every single day. Uh, I was on a learner's wage. So I think I was making $5 an hour in Canada. They had these like basically, uh, you know, just crazy wages for young kids. And the day I, I really hated it, but I was kind of making it through. And, uh, I walked in one day, it was a Sunday. It was after breakfast and all the garbages were full. And my manager goes, Hey, can you please go and empty all the garbages? So I, uh, you know, get all these disgusting bags of garbage and I sling them over my back and I walk outside into the parking lot and it's pouring rain and I feel my back starts to become very wet and one of the bags has split open and is pouring cold scrambled eggs down my back, McDonald's scrambled eggs. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, fuck, just keep, keep trudging towards the, uh, the garbage bins. And they had this weird garbage hutch. It was like a, a big gate, uh, behind like a, a happy looking red fence. There's this massive trash compactor and I open it up and all these rats, you know, scurry, scurry away. And I throw all the garbage into the garbage compactor and there's two doors and I close the two doors like this. And I just put my hands on the thing and I hang my head in shame and I press the red button to compress the trash and garbage squirts out from between the two doors and squirts me directly in the face. And so I have like scrambled eggs and hash browns liquefied all over my face. And I walked into McDonald's and I quit. And that was the last, uh, my last day working there. And I've never gone back to the world of fast food, fortunately. Good uh, motivation to start a company. That's amazing. I didn't know you'd have such a visceral story behind that. Um, is it true that that's one of the first questions you asked the, the founder or... or um, yeah, the founder or CEO of the company that you're looking to acquire? Anytime I interview anyone, I always like to ask that question because it, I, I like to go, what's, how much does this person care about having a job? And, you know, are they incentivized to make something of themselves? And often you don't know what you want to do or build motivation until you know what you don't want to do. And uh, I just find it builds a lot of character having crappy jobs, you know, I, regardless of whatever situation my children grew up with. Uh, I want them to go and, you know, dig ditches and work at McDonald's and do horrible jobs because I think it really gives a lot of perspective. Yeah, uh, I think many uh, listening can can relate to that. Um, so I would love to be able to dive into your whole story of creating MetaLab and then eventually Tiny, uh, but we're not going to have time to get into to the backstory. Um, so we're going to fast forward to kind of where you are now with Tiny. And I think what's most relevant for the audience is, is the lens and frame and filter that you look at companies through. And I think then people using some of that um, to apply to their businesses. Um, in the world of course creation, I, I believe that, uh, that thinking of it as a business, and many do, some don't, is, is, a, is a big step up for, for many people and, and a competitive advantage when you start to think of it as a business. 
So I've got some specific questions for you around that. And I think this will be relevant as well to anybody who's starting a company. I think one of the interesting things I saw is that Tiny's acquired a lot of companies in the podcasting related industry. You've also acquired a lot of communities like Dabble, or sorry, Dribble. You've been drawn to, to those types of companies that are already in the creator economy. What is it about them that's appealing to you and, and Tiny? I started out as a designer and I never wanted to make, you know, a big empire or even start a business. You know, I never set out to start one. I was just trying to make ends meet and started freelancing. And before I knew it, I, you know, had more demand that I could deal with. And so I had to start hiring people and then suddenly I had a payroll. And then, you know, suddenly I was overwhelmed. I had to hire project managers. And then I finally, I hired a CEO. And, you know, 15 years later, I find myself with, 35 businesses and, you know, all this stuff. And so I never set out to do it. You know, the thread that runs through all of our businesses is generally great product and design. And that's just because that's the world I come from. As a designer, I just love when uh, a product is thoughtful and, um, you know, does something positive in the world. And I think that's a great starting point for every business. And so, um, you know, the nice thing about the creator economy is that you're only successful if you do something good, right? Right? If you, you by nature, you have to write something interesting or, you know, uh, talk to interesting people or do so inspiring design or whatever it is. And I think that's the most important part of any business is product market fit and having people who want to consume whatever it is you're making, whether it's written word or, you know, a widget or something like that. So, you know, the way I think about it, that's the most first and most important piece. And there's no better way to learn how to start a business than to figure that out. We, we touched on this briefly before we, before we went into this room. Um, how do you think about it? Because a lot of these businesses are very much driven by personal brands. And there's a certain amount of risk that comes with that, especially when you're looking at, to value it as a business. How do you navigate that and, and dealing with creators who, whose business is perhaps themselves? Well, it's a really hard thing. I mean, I remember um, my first business was a design agency, which I actually still own, called Metalab. And there were various times where people approached us about buying the business, and they would say to me, "Well, the business is you. You know, you're flying down to Silicon Valley, and you're doing sales, and you're jumping into Photoshop and doing everything yourself." And so, um, at the end of the day, the question is, you know, do you want to be the brand, or do you want to create a brand? Um, and I think that if you want to be the brand, then you need to be prepared to run the business forever, right? You might build a lot of value. You might grow your revenue. You might build a really big business like Jake Paul or Howard Stern or Joe Rogan or whoever it is. But unless you create a brand, you can never escape it. And so I think it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of benefit to just being an individual and tying your brand to yourself. Um, but there's a lot of downside because yeah, you're, you're in it forever. Mm -hmm. And so we look at businesses or we're looking for businesses where if the uh, there's no one person, there's no linchpin. And so we can't go and buy, let's say John Gruber or uh, Ben Thompson wanted to sell their publications. Okay. So I buy it. And then what do I, you know, have them sign a contract that says they work for me for 30 years. I don't think I can do that. Um, mm. So it's just not really tenable. To flip that lens to the person that that's running that business, and maybe we can use online courses as an example. How, how would you suggest, or how would you go about creating a moat for businesses like that? How would you think about creating a moat around yourself as a personal brand or or a creator-led business? That's a really hard thing because, um, well, at the end of the day, you're one. You're as good as your students, right? So if you have exceptional students and you can have, you know, with on deck, for example, I'm sure you guys could point to 20 people who have gone on to do incredibly well in their various fields. I think there's a lot of power to that of social proof, right? That's one mm -hmm. potential moat. But at the end of the day, your only way to compete with others is to do something that's unique and to find a niche where other people aren't competing or to find your thousand true fans and just know that they deeply connect with you personally and you can keep selling them. And as long as you maintain that trust with them, that's a moat, right? I really do believe mm. that a lot of personal, uh, there's a personal brand moat that exists that's real, but it's not a business moat. That's a very different mm. thing. Mm. Yeah. And I think we're going to be navigating this between thinking of it as an acquisition and thinking of it as, as, 
just growing a business and building it into something sustainable that has a moat. And there's a few things that you look for in companies, and maybe one we can touch on here is sort of also what you look for and how others could think about it, is having unique customer acquisition channels. If we had to apply that to the lens of creator economy businesses, what, what, are, what are some ways you look at that from the businesses you're looking to acquire? Well, yeah, I think customer acquisition is the most important thing. So if I sell a brand of lipstick, um, let's say I go buy a lipstick business. Okay, well, I have a problem. I need to go on Google and Amazon and I need to buy ads. And every lipstick business in the entire world can all bid that up, right? So suddenly um, my competitor says they'll pay $100 a click. I'm, I'm paying 101 and then it just keeps going and going until no one makes money. However, if I'm a beauty influencer and I have a million followers on Instagram and I make my own brand and I talk about why it's so great and I have my thousand or 10,000 true fans who will always buy my stuff, I do think that's a form of moat. So I think that that is valuable. In terms of the sorts of businesses we like to buy, you know, generally we're looking for something that is, I always kind of like to joke that we like to buy businesses that are like New Zealand. So they're located in the middle of nowhere where nobody's paying attention. They're quietly successful. Uh, that's not where other investors are looking. It's not in a competitive space. They're food and energy independent. And what I mean by that really is, you know, no Google, Facebook, or someone else, no middleman. And they're away from nuclear war. They can withstand the test of time. They don't need to compete with venture-backed businesses with unlimited money, et cetera. And so we're not in the, um, you know, the sexy part of tech where we invest in robots and AI. We're in the boring part of tech where we like to buy the dry cleaners and mom and pop shops of the internet. And, mm. um, you know, we're, we're at the end of the day uh, looking for niches where we can have a quietly successful business that can grow between 15 and 40% a year. So we're not trying to blow the doors off. We're not trying to take a lot of risk. We're just buying kind of simple, predictable businesses. Um, and we really like to buy from founders who value culture and want to sell to somebody who's not just looking for the, you know, the biggest possible outcome in terms of price, but actually wants someone to take care of their culture and their business and see it through. And so we focus on buying businesses we can hold forever, uh, not changing the DNA and just kind of leaving them to grow. Do you have this, the founder continue or do you also, I, I've read, sort of, I, I'm not sure actually the answer to this. I read you bring in a CEO to run that company. What's the sort of balance between that where the founder themselves stays or you bring in an operator from outside? I think often the dream is that the founder would stay, but we've kind of specialized in um, exhausted founders because I was one, right? So mm. I, um, you know, I ran all my businesses. I had a bunch of businesses. I ran them all for about seven or eight years. And then I was just completely exhausted. And I used to look at like, you know, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and all, you know, Jeff Bezos, these guys that would grow their business from, you know, a garage somewhere into a multi-billion dollar business. And I realized that that's not me. I don't actually enjoy, I love the start. I love the, you know, very early stages of operating a business, but I hate businesses once they're 15 or 20 people. I just find it quite exhausting. And I'm really mm -hmm. good at the beginning. And then I'm really good at big scale stuff, but I don't like operating. And so um, what I ended up doing was pivoting to buying businesses and then hiring CEOs. Most founders don't want to do that. Most founders mm -hmm. just go, I'm one track. I'm either running my business or I've sold it. And so when they sell it, often they want to sell to somebody who's going to see it through. Um, and so that's kind of what we do. We go, would you rather sell to a private equity firm or would you rather sell to someone who's a fellow founder who's using their own money to buy your business and hold it for 20 or 30 years? Um, and so it's just, a, it's just like a very different approach to buying businesses than most mm. other people in the tech world. How do you communicate, how do you describe the value proposition to a founder when you're looking to acquire their company? The, the simplest way to put it is, you know, look, there's two doors. One is you go and you hire an investment banker and you spend six months meeting all these different people. They're all going to be MBAs from Wall Street. None of them have ever run a business. They're going to freak out your team. They're going to interview everyone. You know, your whole team's going to be wigged out. And then someone's going to, maybe the deal will close. Maybe it won't. Odds are it won't. And then let's say eight months later, private equity firm finally owns your company they come in on day one and they change everything. You know, hey guys, we're going to start growing 30% quarter over quarter. You know, we're going to change X and Y and Z. We're going to put in some, you know, corporate 
uh, D-bag to run the company. And then they're going to try and flip the business in two years and sell it. And it just creates you know, a lot of potential issues. And again, there's certain businesses where that makes a lot of sense and the founder wants that and the employees are excited about that. But a lot of creative businesses, the employees are just terrified that when the founder sells, they're going to ruin the business. And so door two is, look, sell to us. We'll get a deal done in 15 to 30 days. The money will hit your account. You can stay or go, you know, no handcuffs, no crazy earnouts, nothing like that. And on day one, we're going to close and nothing's going to change. Your employees are going to wake up, their payroll's the same, the team's the same, all the rhythms are the same. Um, and then over time, we're going to try and, with the founder, choose a new leader for the business. But mm-hmm. it's very much an art, not a science. Um, and, you know, it's imperfect. Sometimes, you know, we do run into challenges uh, with culture and change or we bring in the wrong person or whatever. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's just much smoother and less disruptive to the business. Uh, one of the things you're known for is you have a pretty light oversight and reporting sort of role and, and you trust the the founders or the people that the team that's in place. And you said it's sort of more of an art than a science. There's a lot of intuition and gut feeling that I think probably goes into this, right? And it also allows you to close as quickly as you do with very short due diligence. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Like, what is it that, what is that feeling where you just know, okay, this is the right fit for, for us tiny. I think it's, um, you know, A, do we understand the business? So we've been in business for a long time and we've seen a lot of different types of businesses and we understand certain ones, right? So if somebody brings me a SaaS software business in a certain industry, I go, oh, okay, I know how to diligence this. I know how to think about this. I know what to look for. From there, it's, okay, can I get this for a fair price, right? A price where I think I can pay myself back at some point. And then is there, you know, growth opportunity? Is this a business that can exist for another 10, 20 years? From there, like, I'm I'm really going to the, the more qualitative side of, is this a good person? Do they have a good reputation? Um, who do I know in common with them? Do I get a good feeling from them? Do I trust them? Uh, are they authentic, et cetera? And if they're an authentic, nice person um, and I get a really good feeling from them and I know people in common, you can bypass a lot of that diligence and all that kind of stuff. The other thing is these are very simple businesses often. So mm. usually you can diligence them by just looking through a Stripe account and validating a bunch of expenses and stuff. So it's not super complicated. A lot of what takes a long time with other sellers is renegotiation. So we just mm. don't renegotiate. We make one offer. Um, you know, Unless there's a massive material change, we're never going to change the numbers. Mm. Interesting. Um, so changing tack for, for, for a second here, you shared an amazing tw- tweet thread about two weeks ago uh, telling the story of the to-do app that, that you were working on and then got in this epic battle with Dustin Moskowitz and the Sana team. And, and it's fascinating. Anybody who hasn't checked that out, go and check out the pin tweets um, on, Andrew's, on Andrew's Twitter. You also talked about how marketing and paid customer acquisition is so, so important. And you sort of, I think, partly lost that battle. That was part of the, the battle that you lost. Um, to the Asana team, how do you uh, maybe now looking back on that as well? Like, how do you think about marketing and paid customer acquisition? It also relative to not being able to have the biggest budget in in the market. So I had an agency, and I kept reading about um, SaaS software companies and recurring revenue. And when you run an agency, it's a really hard business. I mean, you've got. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of employees you have to keep happy. You've got work that's, you know, super demanding. You have too much demand. And then the next month you don't have enough and you're losing clients. They're coming and going. It's very unpredictable and stressful. And then you can't scale it. You can't triple it in one year because you can't hire three times as many people in one year without breaking the company. And so it ends up being like a law firm or something. It's a, it's a great business, but it's not, it's not Facebook. And I read about all these amazing SaaS businesses and I went, wow, I want to make one of these. I want to, I want recurring revenue and I want to build products for myself. And so I started thinking about what, what my problems were. And one of them was I didn't know what my team was working on and I was having trouble delegating and tracking it. And so I built a, basically a project management and to-do list software called Flow. We spun it out and uh, we, we were kind of a hit. We launched and did really well. And you know, before we knew it, we were making $20,000 a month and we had all these cool people using it. And I had all these VCs come and hit me up to invest. 
And I wanted to bootstrap. I wanted to be independent and I want to answer to anyone. And so I just told all these VCs like, no, I'm staying bootstrapped. And then the co-founder of Facebook, who's a billionaire, started basically the exact same product that I had called Asana, which I'm sure you guys have all heard of. And I didn't think that much of it. You know, he's an engineer. It was kind of ugly. It was kind of confusing. I didn't think it was that well designed. I thought what we were doing was much better. But within a few years, uh, I realized that they were just able to outspend us massively, right? So they could be on every platform. They could afford to hire a huge dev team. And over time, their design got better and better and better. And so they really caught up on product and became better on a feature basis than us. And then after that, better on design. And still at that point, I didn't quite get it. I just kept on going. I was pouring about a million dollars a year of my own personal money into this, uh, losing tons of money. And in 2012, Asana raised a big venture round and they just hired a marketer and they started spending all their money. They started buying you know, millions of dollars a month of Google ads and stuff. And before I knew it, I was seeing Asana everywhere and everyone was talking about Asana and I'm kind of going like, no guys, like we have this better product. It's over here, but we're a fart in the wind. You know, we're just, no one knows about us and we don't know anything about marketing. We don't know how to rank yeah. on Google. We don't know how to do Google ads. We just keep going, well, we're designers. We'll make this look better and launch more features. And so over time, they just won. I mean, and, and in retrospect, you know, I ended up losing $10 million of my own money. Uh, you know, the business is basically a write-off at this point, although it's still running. And when I look back, I'm like, this is like invading the United States when you're Fiji and you've got a bunch of AK-47s <laughs> and they have, they have like, uh, you know, aircraft carriers and fighter jets. And, uh, you know, it was just a very sad story. It was, I felt dumb for, you know, going 10 years into this odyssey and burning all this money and just not thinking it through. But it goes back to when you're creative, you think creativity can conquer all. And in some ways it can, if you, if we had something unique, like if I'd gone out and done an amazing blog or social or YouTube or whatever, and that had been how we got all of our customers, I could have built a sustainable business but I didn't understand customer acquisition. I just kind of quietly built this great thing. And then I didn't sell it anywhere. I didn't tell anyone about it. I just thought everyone would show up. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a sad story, but um, yeah. great learning experience. Yeah. Um, do you think people with personal brand or, or creator driven businesses should be as worried about that same thing happening? Or do you think that's unique to the, the you know, SaaS, the, the type of business model you're in there? I think if you sell something that is a commodity, so if it's, um, you know, you make a calculator for people to do, you know, calculate their laundry or, you know, whatever the thing is, and there's nothing that makes it unique that would make someone stick with that one. And if a better one comes along tomorrow, you're screwed. No, I mean, you should be worried about customer acquisition and understand that math. Mm -hmm. However, if you've got a social following of, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers that are locked in and they like you, I wouldn't worry about the math too much. I just keep thinking about what you can, what you can sell them that they want and you love. Hmm. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. Cause you have over a hundred, maybe 150,000 followers on Twitter. Building an audience is something that's on the top of mind for, I know most of the people, the course creator fellowship and probably many that come into the on deck programs, many listening to the podcast as well you're not someone who talks a lot about growing on Twitter or anything like that, but I'd love to to know if you have any thoughts to share on, on how you've built an audience around the work that you're doing. I think it's a lot of um, like building in public and then telling stories. So for about 15 years, I actually didn't really post on Twitter. I didn't do any podcast interviews. I just kind of had a quiet life up here in Canada. And then when COVID hit, I'm a huge extrovert. And, um, I was missing talking to people. And so I started going on podcasts and I started getting all this feedback and having a lot of fun with it. And so I started posting on Twitter more and I just had 15 years of great business stories and, you know, things I've been thinking about to post. And it was so intoxicating, you know, you post something on Twitter at six in the morning and by, you know, seven o'clock at night, millions of people have seen it and you get reach outs from all these people who you respect and like, and it's awesome. On the flip side, um, you know, you post something, you know, my flow tweet, for example, you mentioned that Dustin Moskovitz, the billionaire co-founder of Asana, he didn't like my tweet very much. And I actually really respect <laughs> him and think he's a really nice guy. 
and it really ruined my day because I'm going, you know, Hey, I thought I complimented him. And I was kind of saying he had great business acumen and treated me well and stuff. And he took a lot of offense to it. And I wasn't able to resolve that with him. And so it's just a crappy feeling. There's a lot of crappy feelings that come from Twitter as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of torn on social media. It's a great thing in order, in or in terms of distribution of ideas and being able to share your learnings. But I feel like when you have a big enough audience, there's always three to 5% of people that will interpret whatever you say in the least charitable way, um, which makes it quite unenjoyable. So I'm, I'm kind of debating if I'm going to keep doing Twitter. Mm, interesting. Um, uh, how strategic are you with Twitter or do you just sort of just throw ideas when they come? Usually I'm sometimes I won't tweet for a week or two and then I'll randomly come up with a bunch of ideas. Usually I'm on a walk or in the shower or something and I think of something and tweet it. And the ones I think will be huge are never huge. And the ones I don't think are a big deal are usually a big deal. So yeah, that's kind of random. But putting in the reps and, and just being consistent with, with building in public, like you said. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to sort of wrap it up with my, one of my last questions. And so anybody who has a question can start putting up their hands and we'll, we'll get a, a queue or a lineup going here. You, you own a few communities. Um, we've talked a lot about personal brand businesses, anything else that comes to mind as those type of, and, and we have potentially some people running communities in the audience as well. Um, if they're thinking about scaling things that have, you have seen work at companies that you've uh, own or that you've even tried yourself? Well, I mean, there's a million different, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a really great infographic that's everything you need to know about marketing. And it's just a, a wheel and there's about a hundred different things. And in all of our different businesses, different things work incredibly well. So in one, it might be SEO and one, it might be PPC. Another one, it's optimization of something else. So there's no one thing I can point at. The thing, the biggest thing that I've found that works actually isn't figuring it out yourself. It's just hiring a great growth person. So, you know, if, if I know, I technically know the basics of most things enough to hire someone great, but when I've been successful at growing stuff, it's not because I've implemented a great thing. It's because I've found somebody who just thinks like that. And so I think once you get to a certain scale, hiring a really phenomenal marketer whose values aligned with you and won't embarrass you, I think can be incredibly valuable. I'm going to just double it on that because that's interesting. What do you look for in that person? Like, is it is it a data skill? Is it a writing skill? Is it like all of the above? Well, I think I think it depends. I mean, if you've got a 300,000 uh, email list, it doesn't make any sense to hire a PPC person. You want to hire someone who specializes in email. I think the more important thing is the qualitative side of, is this a person whose values aligned with me and won't embarrass me. Because I think what happened to me, at least for the first five or six years of business was I'd hire a marketer and they would always embarrass me. They'd put out ad copy I hated, or they would be too aggressive, or they'd do something that was unfavorable to customers or something like that. And so now I really look for people who are softer and better at kind of dealing with, you know, they, they have a sense of design and stuff, but they also know all the levers to pull. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think we have Fiona who has a question. Good evening. Um, really, really stoked to be here tonight. Um, my question was, I guess, thinking about around how like your thesis um, has changed and um, how you see it changing with how the world is changing. You know, think about the year that we've just had and, and the impact it's had on various different areas of life. Has that inf- affected the way you uh, approach the businesses you want to buy or your just your general kind of business thesis really? I think if anything, it's just made me try and focus on things that aren't going to change, not trying to jump into crypto because that's, you know, the new economy or something and really trying to think about, you know, when I look at a business or investing in something, is this something that will exist in 10 years? And increasingly in technology, that's a really, really hard thing to guess. Um, fortunately, because we generally focus on the kind of sleepier, more boring businesses, we can predict that more more often. But if anything, it's actually, instead of being scared of COVID and, you know, kind of jumping in and trying to reevaluate my thesis, it's actually just made me sit on my hands. So I really haven't done very much investing this year. Uh, I've mostly just been reading and seeing what's going on and going, hey, you know, it's okay that everybody thinks they're going to get super rich on crypto and that the stock market's going crazy. I don't need to get FOMO and participate in that. I'm just going to sit and wait 
And it's okay if I have to wait for two years, but I'm just not going to invest in anything unless it's very clear to me and it's a no brainer. And that's hard to do. You know, we've, everyone, everyone is, you know, becoming a crypto billionaire or starting the next billion dollar business or whatever it is. But sometimes the right thing to do is just focus on base hits and wait. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, V. Great question. Great question. All right. I think we've got Sharath up next. Andrew, big fan of uh, Tiny and the whole, you know, your Twitter game is awesome. Uh, my question is, you've run so many businesses and you saw so many founders what what is that advice you give for first time founders like myself so i run a, a product called shadow.so uh, which we recently launched to public uh, 7 weeks ago and what is that advice you give in terms of uh, the do things that don't scale way because so far i've been scaling growing marketing in in a very hacky way and would love to hear your thoughts and what how you did uh, at the very beginning of uh, tiny or uh, the startups you led well, it's hard because I did it 15 years ago. So my advice is very outdated. You know, I, I might say, oh, make sure you code in Java and, uh, you know, use Ajax or whatever. But I think the one thing that I did that is a little unique is maybe just constantly thinking about my P&L and going, okay, I made a dollar, you know, what was left over at the end of it? And really trying to make sure that I have a business model where, even if I can't raise my next round of venture, or in your case, I don't know if you're going to raise venture or you're bootstrapping or whatever, I always could fall back to, I have a profitable business and I have something that works and I have happy customers, happy employees and profit at the end of the day. Um, and that, you know, that kind of feeling of scrappiness of just really getting good at making money and profiting, I think saves you a lot of potential strife because it means your company is not an all or nothing bet. Most people make an all or nothing bet. They go raise a ton of venture. They want to be the next Elon Musk. I think that's great if you are that personality type. For me, I'm very conservative. I wanted to build something that you know could be successful and grow to $100 million, or it could just be a 500K a year business and make me 50K a year. Thank you. Thank you for that advice. Um, thanks, Sharath. Mesh. So I had a question. So given... What's happening in the education space now? You have companies like Masterclass and Monthly, which are more the venture-focused, um, highly produced classes. And then you have now all these course creators using Podia and Teachable, and they're you know some of these courses are making ten million dollars now, and um, from an, for an individual. Are you and or you slash tiny interested in that market at all, or are you watching the education space? Do you do you think that at some point um, you guys would like to dip your fingers in that and potentially like acquire, uh, you know, a, a suite of these courses as potential revenue. I don't, I think the problem with courses is, and so the way that we participate in courses is we own dribble dribble sometimes sells courses, creative market, our, our, um, digital goods marketplace sells courses. Um, supercast could be used to sell courses. For me personally, what we've always struggled with when we have sold courses in the past is you create content and often that content has a shelf life of six to 12 months and it's very expensive to produce. And so I think it goes back to if you're trying to build a really amazing business for yourself, I think it's phenomenal if you're the personality and you know, if you made the ultimate guide to creating a finance podcast and you found this great niche and people are willing to pay you for it and the content will be good for two or three years, that's awesome. But I don't personally like investing in businesses where they have something that has an expiry date on it. And if I don't create more of it, then the business is going to go out of business. And I can't predict whether or not the next one will hit. So you could do an amazing course on that today, but your next three courses could fail. And if it's tied to you as well, it becomes kind of a challenging business. So I think it's a great lifestyle business. I think people who are you know, big personalities should do it if they want a way to make a bunch of money quickly. Um, but as a business for Tiny to invest in, we can't be tied to a single person. And I think that's the challenge we would run into with that. Um, we've, we've actually looked at a ton of these businesses. And uh, while I can't say we would never buy them, I just think the concern is usually like, you know, perishable goods, basically. Awesome. Thanks, Mesh. All right, Jujo. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for today. It's been amazing. For me, the biggest question is, how do you find that product market fit when you don't necessarily have a hungry audience that's waiting for yourself? Like you don't have a massive audience. 
but you're trying to find product market fit. How do you do that? I think it's really, really hard. A lot of it is throwing spaghetti against the wall and trying a lot of stuff very quickly, which is not a very satisfying answer. So, you know, my full-time day job is buying, you know, at scale, big businesses for tiny, but I have a lot of time where I have all this entrepreneurial energy from, you know, I, I just, I love starting businesses. I love early stage businesses. And in my spare time, I'll still start a lot of businesses. Usually like I've got a furniture business, I have a bakery, like all sorts of random stuff that I start off the side of my desk. And it's really throwing spaghetti against the wall. And the difference between me now and me 15 years ago is 15 years ago, I'd go out, I'd say, I'm going to start the business. It's going to do this. And then I would just stick with it even when it wasn't working and I'd keep losing money and stick with it. Now I just throw it out. I shut it down. I move to something else. And so it's just like hiring people, you know, hire fast, fire fast. I think start fast, stop fast. Awesome. Thanks, Juju. And... I, you know, I kind of ran into tiny, uh, I was like weirdly behind, uh, you know, only within the past 12 months, um, when people were saying, oh, it sounds like what you're doing is like kind of similar to, to tiny, like maybe you should go follow this. So one of the things I'm running into as I like, as I start like incubating different projects as, um, I like operating like in the beginning stages as well, but, and I'm trying to bring people in, in the right way, like the right developers, the right consultants, the right legal. And I'm trying to think about like how to be more creative about the equity sharing or the, the sharing of revenue. And so like, what is, how have you, I don't know exactly what your story is in in detail, but in the chicken and egg game of like trying to build and test multiple things, how did you think about scaling that backend operation with like the components you weren't good at, like legal, right? So we, I don't know, I'm not saying evolved, you're not. We've evolved over time from kind of a, you know, we we're almost like a startup studio. We had an agency, agency produced money. We would off the side of our desks, start a bunch of random businesses. I mean, just some of the stupidest stuff you ever imagine, right? Like skincare businesses, cat furniture businesses, like ridiculous stuff. And eventually we stumbled our way into some stuff. But what we realized was that having everything in one org didn't work. And so we spun everything out. And then we actually realized, hey, starting companies is really hard. And we've made all this money. We need to deploy it into something. Let's go buy some at scale businesses because that's a lot easy, easier. And then let's just grow them. So it's a lot easier to go from $10 million in revenue to $100 million of revenue than it is from zero to one or 10 and so we've moved away from that for the most part. Um, in terms of equity and stuff, if I'm starting a business with someone and they take equal risk to me, I will give them equity upside. If they're not willing to take a risk, they want a big salary, you know, they don't want any downside, then I generally will push them to a cash structure. But for me, it's just coming down to, you know, are you risking alongside of me? Um, so, you know, when I start a business, absolutely, we'll give out equity um, if, if they're risking. That's helpful. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Awesome. Thanks, Anne. Dan, welcome to the stage. I, I have sort of a philosophical question, and it has to do with your creation myth and uh, that, that you tell so well in your, your pinned uh, thread. So you said you're a designer, and, and design has to do with taste. How do you operationalize taste? So I don't think you can. Um, I think taste is something that you, it's almost like by osmosis. You know, I grew up around, my parents are, my dad's an architect. My mom loves, you know, interior design and stuff. So for me, it was just something naturally I kind of picked up. And I think the only way to institutionalize it is to hire people who have great taste. And, you know, most of the businesses we buy are started by designers or developers who really care about design. So they naturally have that in their DNA. We would never buy a business that's really kind of ugly and, you know, bad product or something and then go, Oh, the magic we're going to add is taste. You know, we're going to, we're going to use our designers to redesign it. I wouldn't want to do that. Sometimes though, we will have, you know, we own multiple agencies. Sometimes I will pull in one of the agencies to help accelerate something, but I don't think it's something we can build into our culture and our culture isn't really, it's not one culture. It's 35 different cultures because every company is completely different. So we don't have any kind of synergy across the businesses at all. Awesome, Dan. Thanks for that excellent question. Caleb, good to have you here. What, what question do you have? 
So uh, I, I know you kind of said like start fast, kill fast, Andrew. And I'm I'm curious like what your process is for deciding whether to keep investing in one of your like off the desk projects or something like that, like to avoid what you went through with um, your Asana debacle. Like, do you, are you just super rigorous about setting standards and revisiting them? How do you like assess that kind of ROI and then revisit and decide whether to keep reinvesting in something or not? Usually it's really obvious. Like there's just, we, an example is, um, so a friend of mine and I, um, you know, in Canada where we live, all the property values have gone sky high. And we were like, how do we, you know, can we appeal this? The government just kind of gives you like a tax assessment or whatever. And we said, hey, let's start a business where we help people uh, appeal their their taxes. It's a really easy process, but it's actually kind of annoying and there's a bunch of paperwork and stuff. And so we do this and we take a little cut. And so we made this business last summer called BC Appraisal Experts. And we were kind of assuming, okay, well, we'll probably win 5% or whatever of the cases and that'll equal this much revenue um, and that'll employ some people and leave some profit. And we did a, a season of it and we spent 30 grand on ads and we employed someone. And at the end of the day, we only made three grand, right? Because we were just wrong. We just had got, we we're off on the, the conversion rate. We we're off on how much we could make. And at that point, you know, now, now we're sitting here going, okay, well, do we pivot? So we've started brainstorming, you know, that's not going to work, but maybe we can create a really simple software form that helps people do this. And then they'll pay us 49 bucks to use it, but we're not actually going to do the application. So it's not necessarily kill. It could be pivot, um, but it's obvious, right? And it's like, if you release a course and you sell, you're thinking you're going to sell 300 grand. And so you spend a hundred grand producing it and you sell $5,000 of it. It's going to be pretty obvious. It's a misfire or there's something significant off. Um, so I'm not talking about like, there's no checklist or system or anything like that. It's very much just a, you know, Hey, this is just not working. And usually, you know, that the question is, are you in the trough of sorrow before it's going to start working? Well, you know, where you should gut it out or, uh, you know, is it time to put a bolt in the head? Yeah. Does that, does that come from just like expecting, knowing how long that trough of sorrow is with different types of businesses? Like an well, agency like is, shouldn't really have one. Right. I, but like, I thought, I, I thought it with flow, I thought I was in the trough of sorrow. Right. I read the <laughs> Jeffrey Moore book and I was like, Oh, you know, it's really hard. We like got this initial thing and then, yeah. you know, it's kind of flat, but you know, two years it's flat. That's okay. We're just in the trough of sorrow. This is going to work. And, um, you know, no, we're just, we're just slowly dying. Um, so it's really hard to know. And then I've had other businesses where I just feel in my gut, I'm just like, there's something here we need to keep going. Um, and often what I've realized is it's usually something around the business model that's not working or customer acquisition or something simple, um, where it will, but honestly, like to be totally blunt, like this is barely my specialty. If you look at me as a, I have one, one one, no, I have two major successes in terms of businesses I've started. I've started probably 15, 20 businesses. I have two that have really, really worked. Um, so most of them have failed. And, uh, you know, I'm really better as an investor. That That's totally my specialty, I've realized. And I've embraced it. And I only start businesses because it's fun. But I don't expect to make money doing it necessarily. Maybe I should take that lesson too. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Thanks for the questions. Welcome onto stage, Cam. So uh, all of us here from the ODCC side, we're all drinking the course creator Kool-Aid. And one of the things that I notice is there's a lot of students, you see a lot of the same students in a lot of places. And for On Deck to work and for On Deck's kind of like a team in the Tour de France that's, you know, ahead of everything. And there's a lot of indie cyclists in the back and we're letting On Deck get all the bugs in their face and deal with the wind resistance and all that stuff. For this to work, we need a lot more people in the game. We need to not be seeing some of the same students in all the same cohorts. We need new blood coming in. As someone who is not drinking the Kool-Aid and you know not swimming in the course game, what recommendation would you give us to get more, you know, more people taking premium, awesome online courses? Because right now, like I'm finding that people in, in this network I see, but outside of those networks, I don't see as much. I think the best thing you could possibly do is if you're not, if you don't have a big audience yourself go and find somebody who does. So find someone who's like a really prolific writer on finance or whatever, whatever topic you want to do a course on. And then basically do a deal with them and say, look, I'm going to be the course person. You, you go keep writing that content over there. And then you have this net new group of people that 
don't necessarily even know what a course is, but they trust that brand and you know they've got a big audience and you can assume some of them are going to go over there. Um, and that could be that could be something you could do. Um, in terms of people realizing that you know they can learn anything online, um, I, I think it's just going to take time, right? It's like podcasting. It took what twenty years. I've been listening to podcasts for almost twenty years on my iPod and then iPhone, and uh, you know only in the last three years did everyone go, "Hey, this is a big deal." And you got to remember that podcasting had a moment in two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight where, hey, this is the next hotness. And it still took another 10 years after that for it to really mature. And it's still quite early. So I would just keep in mind, this might be the first hype cycle on courses. Um, but those who stuck with it, the radio labs of the world, This American Life, et cetera, they did really well. So you know, maybe it's worth just sticking it out. Thank you. That's fascinating food for thought there. Yeah, great question, Cam. Uh, Caleb, is your mic back? Yeah, let's hope so. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, Andrew, thanks for all the great insights. I just wanted to ask in terms of your uh, filtering process for acquiring companies, uh, what criteria do you sort of look at, like your top criteria, and how do you rank them or weight them, you know, in terms of uh, is it founders, is it finances, is it, you know, leadership, is it the industry, their trained growth record, you know, just keen to hear some of your top factors. I mean, it's all of those things. I, I kind of outlined it a little bit before and some of the things w- that we look for. The most important thing is the people, right? Do I think the team, I always think that when a founder leaves and you put someone new in, which is often the case for us, often the founder wants to leave and they want someone to come in and take over. We're really doing brain surgery And it's quite frequent that the body rejects the new organ. And so you have to be very, very thoughtful. And so when we're looking at a business, we're going, you know, A, is this a good person? Is this a good founder? Is this someone we're values aligned with? And then are these employees values aligned? Are they positive? How are they going to react to us? Are they toxic? Do they hate the founder? When the founder leaves and makes 10 million bucks, will these employees be super pissed and then reject us no matter what we do? So there's a lot of thinking around that stuff. Um, And then often it's more, you know, asking a question like, is this a business that will exist in five years? How about 10 years? How about 15? Um, And, you know, what opportunities are in it that maybe the founder didn't want to do? So often one of the interesting things is founders are often designers and developers of these businesses, and they usually don't like marketing or sales. And so usually we can go, hey, there's all these simple things that we can do that won't be disruptive to the business that we can just quietly layer in that can grow the business a lot. So one example is the founders of Dribble, when we bought it, um, you know, they told us, they were like, look, we hate doing advertising sales. A whole bunch of people email us and we just ignore their emails. And so we started going through the emails and we're like, oh my God, there's a hundred thousand dollars a month worth of advertising demand here. And all we need to do is hire a salesperson. So we hire the salesperson and structure it. Okay. And then boom, we have a hundred thousand dollars extra of revenue. So often it's very simple, um, best practices and stuff like that. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome, Caleb. Thanks for that question. And Andrew, I know we're coming up to the end of time here. So um, I want to throw out one last question, perhaps um, a forward-looking, maybe speculative. What what are some of the interesting areas you're looking at now, spaces, industries, verticals that you think have high growth potential? Well, there's really two right now that I'm thinking a lot about. Um, One is podcasting. So specifically subscription podcasting. Um, So Maybe three years ago, uh, a friend of mine launched a podcast and he didn't want to do ads because he felt like, you know, that was being a sellout. And so he started saying, hey, if you like what I'm doing, just donate. And if you donate, um, you know, maybe I'll give you an extra episode here and there. And I was shocked to see his revenue. He had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of recurring revenue. And so I was like, oh my God, this is like a SaaS business, except the worst part about a SaaS business is you've got a you know, team of developers and you know, all this complexity and stuff. This is just one guy with a microphone. And so while it was very small, I was like, oh, this is amazing. This you know, is something that could be rolled out across tons of podcasters. Um, and so what we ended up doing is building a company called Supercast. And basically what it lets a podcaster do is say, hey, if you want to hear extra episodes or extended episodes or extra content, uh, click the link in the show notes and you'll get your own special podcast feed where I'll release that stuff. And so it goes back to this idea of if you've got 100 listeners 
5% of them are your thousand true fans. And those people are going to want the gravy and the numbers can really get crazy. Uh, we have people on Supercast making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month recurring revenue growing at, you know, between 10 and 30% a year, sometimes more on the high end. Um, and again, it's got SaaS economics with high profit margins and they can still sell ads. So to me, I'm like, this is like the internet in 1999. Uh, everyone's just doing advertising. I think recurring revenue is actually the interesting model for podcasters. So for all of you guys who are doing uh, content, I think you could potentially release a podcast where a lot of the content is free, but then you have a premium feed where you do a core, like an audio course or something like that. Um, and you could even do, you know, a thousand dollars. There's nothing saying you couldn't do a crazy amount. The other thing is, while I'm very skeptical of this cryptomania, I am really interested in the potential of crypto and the idea of, you know, everything becoming a security in a market. And, you know, just, I was talking to someone today and they were saying, you know, imagine if you could buy a, um, you know, a, an ad spot on the Super Bowl and it was on the blockchain. And then if they announced that Beyonce and Jay-Z were the, were the guests and it was the New England Patriots and some other super popular team, that inventory got more valuable. You could just resell it on the blockchain, right? There's really interesting things that just you couldn't really do because there wasn't a market behind them. Um, and I think that's fascinating. And I'm looking at our businesses and going, how could this be applied to them or how could it disrupt them? Um, but it's all at this point, it's all very early. I'm just kind of thinking about it on a very high level right now. Yeah. Lots of food for thought there. Um, Andrew, thank you for being so generous of your time. I know you're, you're a very busy guy and it's been amazing having you here today. I think everyone really enjoyed it. Do you have anything you want to share with the audience before we end off? No, I don't think so. I really appreciate you guys taking the um, time to listen to me blather on and, uh, I, I'm really excited to learn more about on deck and connect with you. It seems like a really, uh, really cool, uh, program. And, uh, I, I hadn't realized how big it had gotten. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, all the, all the different programs I was checking out the other day on the website. It looks amazing. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely talk your ear off about that. It's been great having you here, Andrew. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your Friday. Great. Thanks so much guys. Talk to you later. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.